The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The podcast you're listening to discusses subject matter that might not be suitable for all audiences. That would include murder and suicide, sexual assault, and other topics related to true crime. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Ashley Smith, and on today's episode, I'm going to focus on two separate cases instead of the usual one. And I interview two daughters who are not related, but do know each other. One is Sam Moyer, whose mother Nancy went missing in Tenino, Washington in 2009. The other is Carly Bodine, whose mother Karen was murdered in Rochester, Washington in 2007. While Nancy and Karen may have never known each other, their children have now bonded over a shared fight for justice. This is Washed Away. On a cold January morning in 2007, a mother of three was found on the side of the road in Rochester, Washington. There were no obvious signs of how she died, but someone had left her body in a gravel pit with her head propped up on an abandoned car seat, and a suspicious car was spotted near the scene. But later, the description would change to a truck, and local newspapers at the time reported that this woman was transient when she was anything but... There's actually a lot of misinformation revolving around the unsolved murder of Karen Bodine. So let's clear some things up. Karen was born on March 11th, 1969 in Olympia, Washington, where she lived all her life. She was 37 years old when she passed away and has been described by friends and family as passionate, creative, and fun. She had three children, Tanner, Taylor, and Carly. The general public really just has not cared. They wrote, corpse found on side of road, not murder victim, not mother of three, just corpse found on side of road. They said she was a transient, which was never true. She got kicked out of her boyfriend's that Friday, walked right down the street to her friend's house, and was staying there the whole weekend. That's not transient. And they wrote her off as a drug addict. Carly's talking about a local newspaper here in Washington called The Olympian, who actually had to release a follow-up article explaining their choice of the word corpse when they originally ran the story about Karen's body being found in 2007. Here's a quote from that follow-up. Words matter. No one should understand that more keenly than journalists. Language, written and spoken, is our toolbox. But words chosen for a couple of recent front-page headlines have generated a response that was not intended. In one instance, a headline on a story about a woman found dead by the side of the road referred to the body as a corpse. Technically, that's correct. Readers felt that that was disrespectful and let us know in no uncertain terms. Was that the best word choice for that headline? Probably not, considering the way it was interpreted. Will we use the word again? Only with more careful consideration. End quote. I'm honestly 
kind of shocked they didn't publish an apology with that explanation, since clearly the public and the family were offended. Nowhere in their follow-up article did it say, we're sorry. As for Karen's living situation at the time, Carly explained that pretty well. Her mother was briefly in between permanent residences, and she was staying with a friend. But another sore spot for Carly about how Karen's murder was reported on involves how much focus was given to her struggles with drugs. And that's not to say that that wasn't true, but of course there's a lot more to Karen than just that detail. The struggles my mom had, uh, now that I'm being an adult, I really, really feel for her more and really understand the place she was in more. I really do. But... I could not ask for a better mother in the whole entire world. I mean, my grandma gave her money to go buy shampoo for herself. What'd she do? She gave it to us kids. You know, like, I found a lipstick in her purse that I just liked. I knew it was her favorite color. Carly, keep that instead. Like, we would go for walks. We'd go to candy bars. She taught me how to curl my hair properly. Everyone comments on my nails. Everyone asks if I have fake nails. No, my mother taught me my secret. She's the epitome of the mom. Of course, all moms have issues. No, not every mother was perfect. But she went above and then beyond. And she wasn't just, you know, a girly, girly girl. I mean, she can ride horses and do soccer. And she, she was amazing. The people that Karen Bodine was hanging out with on the night before she was found have been referred to as a rough crowd, and none of them have done much talking about what happened to Karen, at least not publicly. There have been a few persons of interest in her murder over the years, but due to a lack of witnesses and concrete evidence, no arrests have ever been made. Here's some more details on the crime scene. Karen was found about 15 feet from a county road. Her body was unclothed, and she was laying on her back with her head propped up on an old car seat. There were no obvious injuries to Karen's body and no evidence of sexual assault, but she did have a ligature around her neck, and her cause of death was eventually determined to be strangulation. Karen was discovered just after sunrise on January 22, 2007, and authorities believe she was killed not long before she was placed there. Who could do something like that? And why did they leave her body in such a public place? To me, it seems as though the killer not only knew Karen, but the area as well, and wanted her to be found. There's still a family in agony and torture in every day, and we know there's a murderer or murderers roaming the greater Olympia getting scot-free with this. I mean, granted, hopefully they're in jail for another minor misdemeanor but of course they're not going to cop to murder while they're there that kind of sounds like do you think you have a pretty good idea of who might have done this i have major people of interest now the tricky part is and i'm sure you guys all watch law and order and you know csi and criminal minds and and all that You don't get DNA results in the next day. I mean, on a good day, it could take six months, a year. You know, it's a waiting game. It really is. And then by the time that test gets back, there might be a whole nother one. So that one's invalid now and you've got to redo it. 
And the other scary thing about that is you only have a certain limited amount of samples. Now you have to be really careful of the tests you run. What if you run a test? It doesn't come up with nothing. And two years later, they have the test that cures all all. And we no longer have DNA to submit it to. Are the police like looking for your like okay before they run those tests to make sure that it's going to count if they're going to use that DNA? Family has all consent. Yes. We are like gung-ho, get this guy. Yes. So the good news, as you just heard, is that there is DNA available in this case. But what's tricky is that there's only so much of it available and there's so many possible tests to run and these tests keep getting better and better with time. So there's a real fear that all of the DNA will be used on tests in, say, 2021 that don't yield any results. And then in 2022, suddenly a new test comes along that's far more advanced. I can't imagine the pressure and stress that must come with having to make those kinds of decisions. I just, I really feel for Carly. She has been her mom's biggest advocate these last 14 years. She's passed out flyers, created a Facebook group to share information and raise awareness. She's hired a private investigator, given countless interviews, and she recently held a vigil to honor her mother's life. But the latest tactic she's trying to get more attention on her mom's case is putting up a huge billboard on Martin Way in Olympia. I do have another billboard coming up at the, literally the block of the last house she was verified to be seen at. That's where the next one is going at. What we need to do is our main goal right now are billboard money. Um, Because that is so close to being paid off. A thousand percent, including my own money, goes directly to the billboard, to like copying media flyers to pass them out, and for the PI. Now, the PI went to school with my mom. She's saying she will do it pro bono, and I understand that, and I appreciate that. But it costs money to run flyers and run tests and go investigate people. So I want to give her some type of money so she's not spending her own money. If you'd like to help Carly with a donation, I'll be sure to provide that info in my show notes. And another way you can help is by spreading the word about a key detail in this case, the vehicle that was spotted near the crime scene. There have been conflicting reports over the years about whether it was a car or a truck and I'll just let Carly clear that up. In the original newspaper report and in the original, because uh, I have all the crime scene records, and all the crime scene records, it's a 1980s Datsun, probably dirty, car, like the hatchback car. And that's been going around forever, forever. I don't know how it got changed to truck. I don't know if someone wrote it down wrong. I wonder if there's a different witness that saw a truck later in the day and they're misconfusing. But there was a car. I can guarantee you there was a brown Datsun 80 style car with the hatchback. If you have any information about that brown Datsun hatchback car, that would have belonged to someone near Olympia or Rochester, Washington in 2007, 
please call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477. And if you're not sure if your tip is even important enough to call in, Carly wants you to know that those kinds of details matter the most. Let's say you saw someone got in their car jack, but you thought, I'm sure someone called the police. I'm sure something happened. What if no one did call the police? What if you are the only person that was a witness to that crime, but you assumed somebody else called? And people think, oh, my information is so small, it won't mean anything. And it's like, no, that's what breaks the case is the smallest details like that. So that was the story of the unsolved murder of Karen Bodine, what we know, where the investigation is at. Now we're going to go 20 minutes away from Rochester, Washington to Tenino, Washington, where in 2009, a 36-year-old woman named Nancy Moyer suddenly went missing. Nancy is a mother of two, a financial analyst for the State Department of Ecology, and she has an un mistakable smile. It's in every single photo of her. In 2009, Nancy and her husband, Bill, had been separated for a while. And on March 6th of that year, Nancy's daughters went to stay with him for the weekend, which is what they usually did. So that day, Nancy left her work, dropped off a co-worker at their own home, and then was seen buying some groceries at the Thriftway Market around 6.45 p.m. I was super young, so I can't, like, describe her the way that older people would. But my mom was a, just a really kind, trustworthy person. Um, she didn't, like, make enemies. She loved everyone. She was friends with a bunch of people, and she was just amazing. Um, she was a really great mom, too. She made sure that my sister and I were always happy she made the holidays and the birthdays and everything super special. And she just was wonderful and goofy and mom things. <laughs> That's Sam, Nancy's youngest daughter. She was only nine years old when her mom went missing. So here's what happened. On March 8th, two days after Nancy had been last seen at the Thriftway, Bill brought their daughters back home and Nancy was nowhere to be found. Her car was parked out front, so she had made it home from the store her purse was inside the house, but oddly, the front door was left open, like ajar. Some lights in the TV were on, a glass of wine was sitting on the coffee table, and there were no signs of a struggle. It was like Nancy just stepped out for a minute, but in reality, she vanished. She had two, what people are calling wine glasses, on the coffee table when we went to her house uh, to be dropped off the day that we found out she had gone missing. And they said one of them was full, one of them is empty. But one of them was actually a glass mug that wasn't a wine glass. And uh, people have just called it a wine glass. I don't know why. Uh, not that that's really important or not, but I don't know. It might be. <laughs> <laughs> no, it could, it could be if people are saying that there were like, you know, two wine glasses, like two people were sitting there drinking, but it was just an, another glass on the table. Yeah, if she was expecting someone or something. Nancy didn't own a cell phone, so... That couldn't be tracked or traced, and her credit cards still haven't been used to this day. 
She was a reliable worker and a great mom who would never leave her job or, of course, her children without telling someone. So disappearing like this was incredibly out of character for her. When she didn't show up, Bill took the girls back to his house and officially reported Nancy as missing the next morning. Now, when someone goes missing for a really long time, like there are no sightings of them and it's been years and there's no activity on their bank accounts or social media accounts, there's no evidence to support the idea that they just left and started a new life, especially if there are suspicious circumstances and how they went missing. Well, then they go from a missing person case to a no-body homicide case. And that's what happened here. Nancy Moyer's case would remain cold for over a decade, until July 2019, when a neighbor and coworker of hers randomly called 911 and confessed to murdering her. Eric Roberts, the guy that confessed and recanted, a lot of people don't know that they actually did dig up his fire pit. They tore the whole thing apart. A lot of people didn't know that they had searched the fire pit, um, and they did, and there was no concrete slab at his house, which he's been talking about building a concrete slab, and he had bags of concrete there, but he had never built it, so there's no way that she was in the concrete or anything. So he was three houses down from our family house in Rochester. At the time, it was just my dad's house, because my mom lived this guy, Eric, the neighbor, allegedly claimed that he had killed Nancy during sex and strangled her with a scarf. He then told police he burned that scarf and that they should search his basement and backyard fire pit for evidence. He also reportedly told people that he had poured a concrete slab on his property at some point after Nancy went missing. But as you heard from Sam... Some of that doesn't seem to be true. Eric Lee Roberts was arrested for second-degree murder, but a few days later, he recanted his confession, claiming that he didn't remember making it. And without enough evidence to hold him, he was released. I just don't get why someone would confess to something that they didn't do. And he didn't confess because he was already in police custody and they forced a confession out of him. He voluntarily called 911 and confessed, and then that got the ball rolling. I mean, as far as we know, he wasn't even on the police's radar before then. So they had some items that they were um, that they wanted to immediately test for DNA evidence that were found in his basement, I think. And then we didn't get any evidence off those that would convict him. So we, we still have items being tested. It's just a really slow process and difficult case. Oh, okay. So they're still kind of working through everything they collected from his house? Yeah. I asked Sam what her gut feeling was about this Eric situation, and she didn't hold back. He had to have done it. There's no reason he would just make that up, especially out of the blue. And he completely denied knowing her, which was untrue because they worked together and she dated his nephew. And I obviously want to know where she is, but I think it's more important to get the person behind bars first, if possible. Before the bizarre confession in July 2019, there were a couple of other suspects that folks had their eye on. A co-worker of Nancy's that allegedly stopped by the house, noticed the open door, and left. And this was the weekend that she went missing. They had a date planned, I guess. And 
Then there was a door-to-door meat salesman that would later become a convicted murderer. The cell phone audio isn't the best, so if you can't hear the meat salesman's name, it's Bernard Howell. The co-worker was a lot of people's main suspect until Eric confessed. He was supposed to go on a date with my mom the weekend she went missing, and he was kind of like a creepy guy who's kind of obsessed with her and she wasn't really into him. So kind of like, okay, fine, I'll go out with you, quit asking me thing. So he was a big suspect. And the meat salesman is uh, Bernard Howell. And he, before she went missing, he came within a white delivery truck with no label or anything on the side of it. And came up to us. My mom was outside smoking and I was out there with her. And he asked us if, We wanted to buy meat from him and told us what he had. And so my mom ended up buying meat from him. um, And that was it. But then about a year later, after my mom went missing, so in 2010, he was convicted of murdering a Tenino woman on the walking trail. So then he became a suspect in my mom's case. And I picked him out of a photo lineup. And he also denies ever even meeting my mom, and it's not true because his meat was in our fridge. (laughs) Interesting. I mean, that's such an odd coincidence that, like, a a killer literally, like, knocked on your door. Yeah. Just to be clear, none of these suspects have been convicted for doing something to Nancy. It's all just speculation, and we are by no means accusing anyone of anything, just pointing out persons of interest— and why they're being looked at. In Eric Roberts' case, we're discussing him at length because he at one point actually confessed, and he's probably the only one that was an official suspect at one time. So just like in Karen Bodine's case, it seems that Nancy Moyer's family is also waiting on DNA evidence to process that will hopefully lead to something, anything, that police and prosecutors can use to file charges against whoever actually is responsible for what happened to Nancy. But the odds of her leaving on her own are slim to none, in my opinion. And while we wait for those results to come, which unfortunately takes longer for cold cases, you can actually help Sam and Carly by just spreading the word about their mom's cases. You know, keeping the pressure on the police that these cases need to be solved. The DNA needs to be processed. And you can do that by sharing photos and flyers and even this podcast episode, just keeping their stories in front of as many eyes and ears as possible. And something small like sharing a social media post can actually mean a lot to someone like Carly or Sam. Just to spread the word of her case, I guess. Um, Me and Carly have a bunch of plans to get the word out on both of our mom's cases. So, yeah, just word of mouth. Obviously, if they have any information, whether they think it's important or not, to share that with Thurston County Sheriff. The same detective is actually working both of these cases. His name is Mickey Hamilton, and you can reach his office at 360-786-5279. Despite growing up around the same part of Washington State, Sam and Carly actually met at CrowdSolve, which was part of a crime con convention that happened here in Seattle a couple years back. That's where folks that are interested in true crime can get together to learn more about wrongful convictions and methodology or the latest in forensic science. And CrowdSolve specifically shines a light on cold cases that could use some attention. 
The crowd worked with Carly, Sam, and Detective Hamilton to try and come up with new ideas for these cold cases, but unfortunately, not much came of it. Since then, though, these daughters have certainly bonded over their shared fight for justice for their moms, and I sincerely hope they get it. Sooner rather than later, actually, because they've already been waiting for so long. Washed Away is a Cosmic Bigfoot production. For transcripts, sources, and more, visit washedawaypodcast.com or cosmicbigfoot.com. If you have a case suggestion, you can send me an email to washedawaypodcast at gmail.com. And follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at washedawaypod. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and I'll have another episode for you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>